And for me, that's my number one driving point. I, I'm answering to a, high, a higher calling than my own. And because I do that, my, my goal for my patients takes me beyond the constraint of the Hippocratic Oath. Um, I have a lot of faith, and so my faith drives me to do more for my patient than I would if I was just a, a doctor following my Hippocratic Oath. And I think good doctors are answering to a higher calling than their own. All right, here we go again, everybody. Welcome back to the Nurse Tori Selfie Show. On this episode, I am joined by Dr. Stephen Sear to discuss the life of an orthopedic spinal surgeon and skincare curator. Yes, that is what you heard. We're going to get behind the scenes with Dr. Stephen Sear, a Mayo Clinic trained orthopedic spinal surgeon and chief medical officer who has created this amazing medical grade skincare line. So for those of you who don't know me or new to the show, my name is Tori Maskin and I am the founder of the Nurse Tori Selfie Show, a platform dedicated to all the amazing things going on here in the healthcare space. From providers to innovators, entrepreneurs, this is a platform dedicated to all the amazing things going on here in the healthcare space. And today, you guys, we have a really solid show for you. So who is Dr. Sear? He is a father, a spinal surgeon, a military vet, and now a skincare curator. He's been featured on Top US New Doc, as well as a voted top doctor of 2018. And today you're going to get a sneak peek into the life of an orthopedic spinal surgeon. You're going to learn about Dr. Sears' skincare line as seen on Newswatch, Markets Insider, Yahoo, MD Monthly, and as seen on TV, creating wellness products, including nutrition and skincare lines, you guys. We're going to deep dive into spinal surgeon, what it's like to be in this specialty, and also research the science behind his safe and effective skincare line. On this episode, we'll be talking all things skincare, wellness, nutrition. Dr. Sears partnered with these amazing chemists and skincare specialists to formulate a blend of products ideally suited for anyone. Whether it's unsightly scars, skin discoloration, and damaging aging, he's really going to talk to you about the story of how this whole skincare line really came to fruition, the effects of hormones, bacteria on the skin. We're going to be talking lifestyle, nutrition, supplements, skincare. You guys, this one is a good one. Not to mention for any of those future MDs out there, future surgeons, this is a good one for you guys. I I just, this episode was phenomenal. So wonderful to talk to Dr. Sear. And without that, let's welcome Dr. Sear to the show. Okay, so first things first, let's start this podcast off with a bang. What is one tip you can offer the listeners to avoid getting behind the knife with you? Well, I think any time you're trying to avoid any kind of surgical procedure, whether it be orthopedic surgery or spine surgery, the key is to stay physically fit. And one of the things that we want to do when we're seeking that fitness is to avoid things that literally beat up the joints and discs. So in general, as we get older, the amount of water hydration of our joints and discs starts to, same thing with our skin, it starts to dissipate. And so I typically recommend, especially in my older patients, to avoid exercises that put a lot of pressure and repetitive impact on the joints and discs. So I tell everyone to, to focus more on activities like traditional weightlifting and make sure that your cheat sets are 
at a minimum when you're building your body. And so I typically recommend people to do old school bodybuilding basically. In addition to that, I like to make sure that people are doing things like elliptical, swim, cycling. People are doing things that don't repetitively impact the, the spine or the discs. So there are people that love to run and it's something that gives them mental peace. And so you're just not going to take that activity away from them. But as you get older, one of the things you want to think about is how much that repetitive impact is damaging our cartilage and discs over time. So if you're doing activities where there's a lot of impact, you know, whether it be skiing moguls or jumping a dirt bike or even skateboarding and simple things like that. As we get older, you probably want to start rerouting your exercise focus on things more like swimming and cycling and bodybuilding. My groups of exercises that I typically recommend for people to avoid spine conditions that lead them to the knife is yoga and Pilates. Those are my favorite exercises. And not a lot of guys are doing yoga, but I think it's becoming more popular. I think so too. Yeah. I actually think it's on the upswing. I mean, cause you're very fit. I mean, you're just, you're exceptionally fit. And I think that's actually something that I really speak to as well as I think it's really important. Let's talk about your background. Like where did this, where did this start? What is your background? You know, fitness obviously is important to you. Yeah. So for me as a, as an athlete, I was growing up uh, playing football in every sport you can imagine. I've been a martial artist for more than 30 years. But I played football all the way through the college level. I was a collegiate athlete. I was a running back in college. Where'd you go? I went to a school in Texas called Southwest Texas back then, but nowadays it's called Texas State University. Okay. So I went there with a specific purpose to play football. And at the same time, I already knew that I was going to go into medical school. That's been a lifelong goal of mine since I was four. So considering that, I was going to go to medical school after my NFL career. That was the plan, right? So Uh things don't always work out the way we planned. But that was my initial goal was to go to college to go to the NFL and then eventually to become a doctor. So did you always know you wanted to specifically become a surgeon? No, you know, a long time ago when I was four, I remember that's the first age that I started telling my parents that I was interested in becoming a doctor. And I guess the initial impetus for that came from my father. My father was a PA, was a physician assistant in the Air Force. Oh, that's awesome. And so watching my father, you know, he would take me to the clinic. He would treat us anytime we were sick or injured. We never went anywhere except my father. And so he would always take care of us. And I saw that and the ability to heal injuries and and heal sickness from my father gave me the incentive to want to do something similar to help other people like my father. And he would take me to the clinic from time to time and introduce me to patients as I waited for him. So I wanted to be a doctor at the early age of four, but what kind of doctor I wanted to be morphed over time. And eventually I started out wanted to be a psychiatrist because he then later on became a psychologist and we were planning to practice together. But then what happened was I played football in college in my first year, I had a torn ACL. So I had to have surgery to reconstruct my ACL. And most of the time, and not every time, but a lot of times college running backs never come back after their ACL surgeries, you know, so we had a lot of guys on our team or Tommy John surgery with baseball, you know, those guys never, yeah, there are some career ending injuries for some people, but the field of orthopedics has changed a lot of that. So as we have gotten better with reconstructing injuries, like ligament injuries, we start to see the people that, that are injured having good surgery come back and actually playing for pretty long careers, even even after having injuries. Do you work with a lot of athletes or are you more on, like as, as a specialty with, with surgery, what specifically are you seeing typically? So I, I would have been a sports surgeon because that was my initial goal. So as a college football player, I tore my ACL. I had it reconstructed my freshman year, so I redshirted that year. And then I came back and what really made me want to be an orthopedic surgeon was the fact that as a running back, I was 230 in college. 
I came back and I ran a four or five and I was really impressed with the ability to even number one, come back, but number two, to be able to play at that level. So at that point I knew that I had to be an orthopedic surgeon because the ability to take an injured knee or an injured anything really and definitively intervene and fix it really it kind of piqued my interest. And at that point I knew, oh, I have to do orthopedic surgery. This is, this is my field. And if you look at most of the orthopedic surgeons that you'll meet are ex-athletes. It's, it's the field that I guess athletes kind of are geared yes. towards. So, you know, we're, we want to do stuff related to the yeah. body, to the musculoskeletal system. So a lot of us become orthopedic surgeons when we go to medical school. What are your bread and butter, butter surgeries that you're, you're working with? On well, the daily? I'm only a spine surgeon now, but my initial residency was in orthopedic surgery. And what happened for me personally was when I was in my residency, I started doing the surgeries. Of course, you know, we, we do our residency over the course of five years. Mm-hmm. And I remember in my third year, after seeing all the different specialties, because we rotate through different specialties in orthopedic surgery, that's how residencies are done. So I did pediatric surgery, pediatric orthopedics, or musculoskeletal oncology, which is cancer surgery of the bones and joints and of the muscle. And then we have hand surgery, we have joint surgery, we have sports, we have spine surgery. And so when I was rotating through those different fields, I started to realize, well, actually, I don't like sports surgeries as much as I thought I would. I didn't realize that until I actually got to see them on a repetitive basis. I think that's like that for a lot of us in the medical field. Like you don't really know what it's like until you're really doing it, you know? Yeah. You know, it sounded interesting, but when I got into the nuts and bolts of it, it seemed a little repetitive to me. And so there are guys that are amazing and they do great work. You know, they're, they're affiliated with big teams and the goal of any orthopedic surgeon who's a sports surgeon is to be affiliated with a professional team, but it's not, it's not really that way. You know, you have to pay your way. You have to pay to be part of the team. It's really, it's not, it's not what I thought it was. And so because I found the surgeries more repetitive than, than I found interesting for a little while, believe it or not, I considered completely changing fields and going into plastic surgery. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I don't know why, but there's something about the artistic side of plastic surgery that was intriguing to me. It's very artistic, yeah. I think. And I so love that. Yeah. So that's how my mind thinks. I'm kind of 50% academic, 50% artistic. That's, that's the like way me. my mind has always been. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, wait a second, maybe I, I don't want to do orthopedic surgery after all. Maybe it's not made for me. Maybe I should do plastic surgery, but I, but I had one more rotation that I really had to focus on, which was spine surgery. And in the field of orthopedic surgery, a lot of us stay clear of spine surgery. It's one of those fields that takes a lot of time. Yes. It takes a lot of attention. It takes a lot of patience and it's high, high risk. You know, when so- I discovered you were a spinal surgeon, I was so intrigued because it is, it's very nerve wracking when you're working with that part of the body you I mean I can't imagine from start to finish how many years of 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 practice and studies and how long did that take you to master well so orthopedic surgery is a five-year residency and that's after four years of medical school so the way it works is you do four years of college I I, I cut that short because I got in early I'll explain that later but I, I got into medical school early but it's four years of medical school four years uh, five years of residency and then if you specialize, it's at least one, if not two more years. So for me, it was five plus one, which is six plus the four. So it's 10 years it's after long. college. It's a lot. That's it. That's a, an investment. Yeah. It's, I mean, everybody else has been working for 10 years by the time you're starting. Totally. So I really feel like there's potential in all of us, right? But I don't really, you know, not everyone can become a spinal surgeon, what is it like being a spinal surgeon? Well, you know, when you first learn, it's real scary. I mean, I think anything that, that, that you 
put yourself in where other people's livelihood or lives are at risk, I think you have a lot of pressure to perform. And I think medicine in general is one of those professions where you have to be called to it. You know, there's a greater calling or greater power that kind of drives most people to entering the field of medicine, no matter what that profession is in, in medicine. But I think surgeons are a different breed of doctor in general. Surgeons are kind of go-getters. They're more really high type A, really, really like A plus personality types. And in general, I think they're the, they're people that want to intervene and change something there. There's different perspectives in medicine where some people like to treat things that are chronic conditions, you know, a titrate medications for hypertension, you know, titrate medications for diabetes, more primary but, care. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, you're, it's important, very important. Absolutely. Yeah. And those doctors are brilliant as well. But for, I think surgeons, if you look at the mentality of surgeons, they're usually people that want to do something and see a result. Mm-hmm. And so surgeons in general, I think are that way. They're really more driven than natural. So it has to be a kind of part of your character in the first place to even be interested in the field. And then different fields of surgery carry different risk and different liability. And they require different personality types. They really do. Orthopedics is more, like I said, more athletes, athletes, people that want to do something with a body. You know, they know about sports. They know about sports injuries. So it's inter- interesting to them. Most people that do spine surgery, it's there's two different specialties that go into spine. It's either neurosurgery or orthopedic surgery. And there's a lot of, I think, misunderstanding and mis, I guess, misinformation really about who should do your spine surgery. I see forums all the time. I've I've been invited by a lot of patients to enter forums to weigh in because you see patients giving other patients advice. And as you know, as a nurse, that could be really dangerous. Yes. You have to be really careful. Very careful about what you're consuming. Yeah. I mean, and and even amongst specialties, you know, you you don't want to get spine surgery advice from your primary care doctor. Correct. Right. You don't want to get, you don't want to get adult medicine advice from your pediatric doctor. You know, there are specialties for a reason. We can't know it all. The body is so complex and so complicated that one specialist can't know it all, right? So there are fields where they're kind of superficially aware of most things, but spine surgery is one of those things where you really have to do a residency, in my opinion, plus a fellowship. And so when I recommend to people, when you're looking for a surgeon, don't just look for a title, neurosurgeon or orthopedic surgeon, that's a mistake because neurosurgery is focused on the, the nerves and the soft tissue primarily the brain and they're brain surgeons, right? Orthopedic surgeons are, are focused primarily on the musculoskeletal system. So that's the extremities mostly, but it also involves the spine. And so for me, the reason that orthopedics to me seems a little bit more in line with spine surgery is because most conditions that affect the spine affect the musculoskeletal system. They're not affecting the nerves. So what I mean by that is there are tissues and bones and structures outside of the nerves that cause pressure on the nerves, but it's a structural issue. And a lot of times there's instability. The soft tissue has lost its structural support. And so you'll see people that have an unstable spine and the surgeons that are so focused on soft tissue will do an operation that sounds better because it's smaller, but it yields a worse outcome. So one of the keys I think is when you're looking for a surgeon, make sure they're fellowship trained. And whether they're neurosurgeons or orthopedic surgeons, it's not as relevant as where do they do their fellowship? Because the fellowship is really what dictates what they're going to do for you. And you don't want to go to someone whose only focus is minimally invasive surgery or only focus is surgery on everybody they see. You have to really kind of dive into who they are, where they trained. And most importantly, I tell everyone, look at what the patients say. 
because patients really are where the truth comes from. How would someone like, okay, someone who is getting ready for surgery or they have a, a family member who is and they're trying to find a doctor, is there a good way to weed through who you would, like how would you do it for your family members if you were looking for someone? So if I'm looking for a specialist, yeah. I'll, look at, I'll look at where they trained. So okay. the foundation of any good doctor is based on where they trained, right? So I would look at where they trained and I would consider the reputation of that program. If it's a, if it's a, if it's a straightforward specialty, like a primary care doctor, internal medicine, where they did the residency is important. But if it's a, if it's a fellowship type surgery, like a hand surgeon or a spine surgeon or a joint specialist or, or even a sports surgeon or even endovascular surgery of the brain, you know, not all neurosurgeons can do endovascular surgery for aneurysms and things like that that are more complicated. You want to look at where they did a fellowship. Did they do a fellowship in the first place? Spine surgery is one of those fields where you should definitely wait until you see someone who's had a fellowship in spine surgery. It's its own animal. It's a totally different field from basic understanding that we get out of residency, whether you're a neurosurgeon or an orthopedic surgeon. And most orthopedic surgeons that do spine surgery, especially younger ones, and, and what I mean by younger is probably in their 50s and younger. That's a younger group of surgeons, right? So I'm almost 50, so to me, that's young. But, You're so, you look yeah, so young. Thank you. We're going to fast forward to why, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> so when you look at the training, you want to make sure that number one, that they have a fellowship in spine surgery. So if we're talking specifically about spine, I'd make sure they have a fellowship. And look at the ranking of that fellowship. What's the ranking of that program? Interesting. So there are all these programs around the country. There's a lot of programs where you can learn but they're not all top tier programs. So mm -hmm. if it's my family, I'm looking at where do they train? There are some programs that everybody knows that these are the top programs in the country. So I went to the Mayo Clinic for a reason. I mean, I, I interviewed around the country and I ultimately chose the Mayo Clinic. There's another program in New York called the Hospital for Special Surgery, which is a very high ranked for orthopedics and, and ultimately for spine surgery. And then Johns Hopkins is always the top program. When it comes to spine surgery, there are other programs that not everybody affiliates with just the layman's understanding of where a great spine surgeon can be found. But so those are the top three, but programs like, believe it or not, there's a, there's a guy named Steven Garfin in San Diego, who's very well known for putting out really good fellowship trained spine surgeons. So UC San Diego is a great program. And then Wisconsin, there's a program in Wisconsin. And those are probably my top five. Um, when it comes to other programs, there's a guy named Frank Eismont in Miami. So these are the kind of insider programs where University of Miami is not a household name amongst lay people, but in the field of spine surgery, we, we know where the really good spine surgeons are. So Thomas Jefferson in, in Pennsylvania is another one. So there's just programs like that around the country. But for me, it would be, I'm always going to be biased towards Mayo. So yeah, it's like really a Mayo Clinic Training Fellowship is unique because what happens at Mayo is, at least when I was training, it's changed a little bit now, but they would take one fellow in the country. So one person from the entire country gets selected and that person was trained by both the neurosurgeons and the orthopedic surgeons in spine surgery. So that's very unique. If you find somebody who has that kind of fellowship, that person is probably going to know pretty much everything they need to know about the spine. And, and that kind of fellowship is, is very rare. So the beauty of that is that there are techniques that neurosurgeons do that are very good. And there are things that orthopedic surgeons do that I think are better than what a neurosurgeon would do. And the reason I say that is because the musculoskeletal system is a structural framework of our body, right? So our body hangs on a skeletal structure, our spine and our, and everything that we do has an impact on our spine. So if you look at the spine, the spine has mobility because it's connected by soft tissues. And when the spine goes awry, when something goes wrong, as we age, as, when we're injured, 
those things all affect primarily the soft tissue. And what happens is the soft tissue loses fluid, it loses water, and it becomes dry. So I tell everyone a disc that's dry is like a piece of jerky versus a piece of steak. When you tear a piece of jerky, it's much easier than tearing a piece of steak. So if your discs become dry as a function of age or injury, then they're more, more prone to tearing. And that's why as you get older, as even if you're an ex-athlete like me, you probably don't want to be running every day, five to right. 10 miles a day, because even though you probably could, eventually your discs would, would give, right? So I have two selfish questions for you that I sure. want to know. Okay. What are your thoughts on chiropractors Okay. and two um, CrossFit style workouts? Oh man, that's those are tough <laughs> questions. We're going to go down the, so, the rabbit hole here. Cause so I'll tell you, here's what, honestly, know. here's what I think about chiropractors. I think chiropractors definitely have a very important place in medicine, especially in non-surgical medicine. But I have a, a personal bias against high-speed manipulation of the spine. And the reason I say that is because although it may feel good temporarily, you have to ask your question, if something is effective, why does it have to be done forever, right? Anytime you have to go to someone for the rest of your life, I've been going to this person for 10 years or 20 years, and, and those things have had a history of potentially, and it's not everyone, mm -hmm. but having a potential of tearing the disc and causing disc extrusions or disc herniations, causing strokes when you manipulate the neck. Those things have happened. People have come out of those manipulations paralyzed and, uh, and sometimes be careful. they don't come out of those things. Right. So is it rare? Yeah, it's very rare. But if it was my neck, I would never let anybody do high speed manipulation of my neck. I, I believe very, very strongly in other things they do, like I think electrical stimulation and I think even decompression, they do those really expensive traction devices or they call it decompression. It's not mm -hmm. a true surgical decompression, but what it is is pulling inline traction with your spine. I think that can be helpful. Um, so those things, I think chiropractors know a lot about, you know, non-operative modalities, but the thing that I always limit when I send a patient to a chiropractor, because I do sometimes, is I eliminate manipulation. And I would, as, as, a, as, a, as a spine surgeon and spine specialist, I would say, don't allow anybody to manipulate your spine if you're in your 30s or 40s or higher. Hmm. I think that at that point, our discs are more prone to tearing. And there have been even young people that have had problems from manipulation. And so it's probably not wise. Chiropractors are probably not going to like to hear that, but that's eh. my personal opinion. Hey, but we're open mind here. Yeah, open yeah. mind. So this is my opinion as a spine surgeon who sees... Unfortunately, the, the bad side of treatment, of non-operative treatments. There are also people that are so focused on non-operative treatment and not to call anyone out because I rely heavily. I have some very good friends that are pain specialists. But you have to know when your specialty has met its match, right? Mm -hmm. One of the things that a good doctor of any specialty has to know is when they're not able to help anymore. And when right. their continued intervention could actually lead to damage and injuring our patient, which is not the goal of any doctor I know, right? But some people only know one treatment, right? So if my, if my focus is on pain management and I don't believe in surgery, then I'm going to do everything I can to avoid you going to a surgeon. The problem is if that, if that pain specialist doesn't realize that there's a damaged nerve and, and then the longer that nerve is damaged, even if they inject and eliminate the pain temporarily, if that nerve is being consistently compressed, the longer you allow, allow that to happen the less likely any definitive intervention will ever improve that problem. It goes up and up and up the longer we wait. So you Yeah, know, and that's when, kind of where I tell people, like, you yeah. have to kind of be your own guru, right? You have right. to make those decisions for yourself, especially as a patient. And, you know, platforming a lot of different 
specialties here, I think you can catch on very quickly that there are a lot of things. There's a lot of different um, ways to approach things. And sometimes I do agree with you, providers will hold on too long. Yeah. And uh, so what I tell anyone, if you have a bad spine, look at a credible spine surgeon, right? Those of us who do spine surgery conservatively, we act, we like to be the gatekeepers, right? I know that's backwards. Usually the subspecialist is not, they're the last, the last ditch effort, right? But a conservative surgeon doesn't look at everybody as a surgical patient. In fact, if you look at my clinic volume, we probably see 400 plus patients a month. We do So surgery. people are coming to you sort of like, this is the last go before, and you're the one saying yes or no. You're kind of like the saying, okay, we're going in or no. Yeah, this well, well my practice is focused very heavily on conservative treatment. So yeah. when someone comes to me, they don't get surgery just because I'm a surgeon. I, right. What my, what my focus is, is on getting you better, right? If that means that I send you to therapy, then I will send you to therapy. But the difference is I know what therapy to order because my specialty is the musculoskeletal system. And as an ex-athlete and as an orthopedic surgeon, and then subsequently as a spine surgeon, I have this triple perspective on fitness, right? So I want to, I want to focus on things that I know won't harm you and give you a chance at real conservative efforts. And then know when to call it, call it quits. Okay. The therapy is not working. It's time to talk about something next, right? The next step is what injections. The injections that serve dual purpose for me, when I send someone for an injection, I identify which injection I would like the patient to have. Why? Because I know where the needle should go, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't just look at a report when I say, oh, this person has this diagnosis. I actually read the MRI myself, right? So the benefit in that is that sometimes radiologists that read reports or read studies, they're flying through the reports really fast. When I'm seeing a patient, I'm spending a lot of time looking at that study and identifying where the real pathology is. So that if I say, okay, well, the report says this, but this is what I see, and this is what your clinical exam shows me, what your symptoms tell me, I'm putting it all together. Even a, a good radiologist always says clinical correlation recommended. What does that mean? That means what does a doctor think about your exam and your findings and your complaints? So when you see someone who can put it all together and not just read a report, somebody who's a specialist in that field, then they can say, oh, there's a nerve that's shooting down the side of their leg to the top of their foot. That's the L5 nerve. And if you look at the MRI here, it's compressed right here. So when I send them to a pain specialist, I'll say, I want you to target the left L5 nerve root, right? So then I know they're not just getting an injection that only provides relief, but it also gives me diagnostic information. So I'm doing injections for two purposes. One is to confirm where the problem is coming from. Two is to make them better, right? And those are steroid injections, correct? Sometimes steroids. Yeah, there's a lot of different things. You know, sometimes we do selective injections with no steroids if people can't tolerate steroids. Sometimes we'll do growth factor injections. Oh, interesting. And it's sometimes even people call them stem cells. There's stem cells that you can harvest from the bone marrow, from the peripheral blood. Those aren't my top two choices. My, my top choice, believe it or not, is amniotic growth factors. Oh. So when I don't do steroids, I'll use amniotic growth factors. I think they have very potent anti-inflammatory benefits. So they decrease the swelling around the nerve. And there's potential there for regeneration that steroids don't provide. So, so speaking as an athlete, going back, because I want to know this, yeah. how do you feel about CrossFit? I want to know. So, I think CrossFit is great for your muscles okay. and, and, and building. My husband's either going to love me for this question or hate me. Yeah. So, I'm not a huge fan, to be honest. You know, I, think, I know. This is how I, I have this mixed feeling about it because he really does love it. But then sometimes I'm like, is that much weight? And repetition, good for your muscles, your hips, your back. Like, I'm like, I don't know if that really... I don't. I, for me, I'm not, I don't have an issue with weight. I don't have okay. an issue with repetition. I have an issue with the form, right? Mm. So for me, it's all about form. And CrossFit is focused on moving the weight as fast as you can, right? And so I have a lot of friends that are like, I have some world-class level CrossFit friends, 
and they all have had surgery on the rotator cuff. They've all had back injuries. I mean, they, it will eventually, you will have a muscular body that has beat up joints. It'll catch discs. up to you eventually. And I think, you know, especially as we age, I think your body just can't tolerate that level. You know, even if we'd like to, I mean, even supreme athletes like Kobe Bryant eventually is going to tear their Achilles, you know, when you right. push it beyond a certain level. And as we get older and our tissues get more dry and more, more tight, you know, it's really hard to be able to continue to absorb that type of impact at that, that high speed, high speed repetition is the, is the concern. And they throw weight around, they throw their body around, they, they do muscle ups and gosh, will it build a muscular physique? Heck yeah, it will. But at what expense is the question? So mm -hmm. for me, I'm, I'm really a traditionalist. I like old school bodybuilding, really concentrate, concentrating on form and then, and then doing functional activities that I think put less impact and repetitive plyometric activities uh, that, that are more likely to cause damage to our joints and cartilage. So how do you, I'm always curious about this because you are expected to operate at this such high level and you can't always have a perfect day. So, you know, and not every operation can be a slam dunk. So how do you, how do you handle this as well, a, they better all be slam dunks. You know, <laughs> you know one, one of the things Love I, that, yeah. So, I mean, I really, so I think the key, um, when you become a surgeon, you, you have to have eventually you have to develop the confidence and you have to have that foundation of knowledge. And then if you're not there, you continue to train and learn and read and study and go to, go to courses if you haven't learned enough in your fellowship. But I think if you go to the right program and, you know, I have been war tested, literally war tested. I was in Iraq twice and, and as a, as a chief of spine surgery in the air force, it was a Thank you for one. your service. Ben. Thank you. I appreciate Thank you. that. It's my pleasure. Yeah. But I think that one of the things about a high level, a high tier fellowship is that you leave that fellowship with all the tools necessary to eventually become a very careful and hopefully very talented surgeon. But none, none of us, no, ma no matter where you train, you don't leave your first one, two, maybe even your first three years being super confident and super capable. You know, our skills develop over time like anything else. You know, the more you do it, the better you become at it. The more you test and push yourself, the better you become. The more you kind of expand your horizons and expand your knowledge. Mentally tapping into your young self, what is it like doing your first spinal surgery? Like how anxiety driving is Well, that? my first surgery was unbelievably ridiculous. I mean, I, so I was coming back from Mayo and our head of, of musculoskeletal oncology, our tumor, our tumor surgeon saved a very high level, very dangerous surgery for me for my first case, which is not the way that most people are introduced to their first job as a staff surgeon. Um, but there was a very a malignant tumor, a very high, high speed, high grade, very dangerous tumor that was growing into the spinal canal, compressing the spinal cord in the mid back, the thoracic spine that extended over multiple levels that, that invaded the lung parenchyma, the lining of the lung and had invaded some of the ribs. So it was a very dangerous surgery because it was a high grade malignancy so when we're doing cancer surgery, if we cut into the malignancy, if the margins aren't clear, then what happens is the cancer spreads throughout the body and the patient doesn't live very long at all. They get metastases. So when we do these resections, it requires a wide swath of normal tissue. So I can't just go in and scoop out the tumor. I mean, I had to cut out normal bone and normal tissue around. Which is often the case, I'm sure. Yeah. So my first case was literally trial by fire. I had to take out multiple thoracic bones, three, three other thoracic bones, half of the thoracic spine I had to remove. And then I had to take out this all avoiding the spinal cord 
take out four of the ribs and then I had to take out a portion of the lung lining so that we could get the tumor free and clear. And then I had to reconstruct the defect in the spine and then a hand surgeon slash cosmetic surgeon came in together and they, they did vascularized grafts and they swung a flap of the, the back muscle to the other side. I mean, it was a very high level surgery, but that surgery, and then I had to fuse from basically T3, which is up high in the mid back, all the way down to the, the upper lumbar spine. That was my first case out of fellowship. And, and I was really nervous because this person's life, it wasn't just one of those things where they had leg pain from a nerve that was getting compressed from a disc herniation. It was literally a life-threatening surgery and it was very risky. So that surgery, I was really afraid. You were thrown into it. Yeah, and I had no choice. I, I was the final answer. I was the chief yeah. of spine surgery for the Air Force. Most people aren't put in that position first day out of their fellowship, but I was. And so I actually called my mentors. I think most of us who are, are smart will call back to where we trained and who we trained with, especially if we respect them. So I called the guys that trained me at Mayo, the mm -hmm. guy who did most of the cancer surgery, and I told him what I had and what I had planned. It takes a lot of planning. You know, these surgeries are not, you don't just go in and show up and say, oh, there's a cancer in, on the MRI. Let's just go at it. And yeah. I mean, this is not exploratory surgery. This right. is a very well planned and thought out surgery. And I think every surgery I do, even the more benign surgeries, the more simple surgeries are that way. I know exactly what I'm dealing with. I know where the disc is com compressing the nerve. If the spine is shifting, I know how many millimeters to the point zero one millimeter how many millimeters of shifting there is in the spine. I look at that. I measure x-rays. I have patients flex and extend. I measure the size of every bone that I'm going to put a screw in. I do a CAT scan and I measure the width and the depth of every pedicle screw I put in the spine. So there's a lot of planning that goes into a well-done surgery. There are doctors that use the same size screws on everybody they do surgery on, which as you can imagine is absurd. Yes. Because the sizes of our bodies and our frames vary just as much as our external appearance does. Mm -hmm. So that is dangerous. But for me, I was trained to be very meticulous and methodical. And so when I measured the bones and I figured it all out, I had a plan and I called for backup. They told me your plan sounds perfect. That's exactly what I would do. We did the surgery and 30 hours later and it went off without a hitch, but it was scary. And you know, those kinds of things give you the confidence. I think you need that surgery literally built the foundation of my confidence as a surgeon for the rest of my career. Yeah. I think those are moments for a lot of us in in healthcare and medicine period, like the ones that challenge you the most. Yeah. Along that bloodline, what are some characteristics, if you could pick out three characteristics of a successful spinal surgeon, or you know, what are some things that you think they should possess? Well, I think successful and, and good aren't necessarily always synonyms, right? So there are doctors that are very talented technically that can do surgery very well. They actually look very slick, but success has many different terms success as in you know are you actually getting rid of the problem or do you look good in the operating room you know there's some people look really good and their outcomes in the clinic are scary and a lot of people that <laughs> work yeah a lot of people don't realize that, that when they work in the hospital they see the surgeon from externally right you can't even see in the wound right so you're just assuming and oh, this person moves really fast and they're really confident and real cocky and they come in like superman they walk out and you know they, they look like they just saved the day but if you go to their clinic, everybody's dragging their legs behind them. They all have failed fusions and people are miserable. They're on narcotics. They're drug addicts through no fault of their own because they've been addicted to opioid narcotics. And so those kinds of things, people even in the hospital who think that they're insiders, really, they don't see. And that's why I always tell everyone that you need to look at what patients say. I don't care what surgeon it is. I mean, there are 
people that are you can't make happy no matter who they see, right? They could see the best surgeon who's the most humble, the most gracious, the most patient-centric surgeon on the planet, and they won't be happy. But I think if you look at an overall, I guess, a, a huge number of an overall volume of high praise for a surgeon, that that should, that should really be something you want to focus on. And then on top of that, where do they train? Not, not just what patients say, but where do they train? Do they have the skills, the foundation mm-hmm. of knowledge? So for me, successful surgeons have to be empathic, number one. And I think that's one of the things that has really driven me to work hard to be very good at what I do. Because it's not for me. It's not for accolades for myself. It's to make, to literally intervene and to make that person's life better. And for me, that's my number one driving point. I, I'm answering to a, high, a higher calling than my own. And because I do that, my, my goal for my patients takes me beyond the constraint of the Hippocratic Oath. Um, I have a lot of faith. And so my faith drives me to do more for my patient than I would if I was just a, a doctor following my Hippocratic Oath. I actually feel like the Hippocratic Oath is the most basic requirement of a doctor. And I think good doctors are answering to a higher calling than their own. So I think those I two like things, so empathy, yeah. um, answering to a higher calling, you know, than your, than your own. And then of course the foundation of training. Training is, mm-hmm. is huge. I mean, you know, you can have the, the most empathic doctor on the planet, but they may not have the right training to do the surgery properly. And then you can have a surgeon who's extremely talented and skilled technically, but they don't have the empathy to really care. So what do they do in the operation? They fly through the surgery. They're there to be done and their numbers are important to them. How long it takes them to finish is important to them. And so I think you never want to go to a surgeon whose focus is on numbers. You want to focus, you want them to focus on outcomes, not income. Volume. Um, what, this is another selfish, selfish question. So um, do you have certain things that you appreciate in your OR from your nursing team? Like yeah, so, I mean, you, really like? you have to, another thing that a surgeon that is talented and, and that is skilled and that is successful has to have is a team of people because a surgeon is one of many. If you look in my operating room, there are nine people in the OR most of the time. So does that mean that I'm doing everything? No, of course not. I I rely very heavily on my team. So because I grew up in a household where my father was a PA, I had a huge understanding and appreciation for mid-level providers, even before PAs were a thing, right? Nobody even knew who a PA was when my dad was a PA. We're still learning. People are, that's why we did this because I'm like, people still are learning about it. So, so for me, I had a respect for that immediately. And, and then later on, when I became a surgeon, I, I realized that you can't do any of this without a team of people that really care. Nurses are a vital part of my OR. If you look in my OR, my team has been selected. Like I don't ever go to a hospital and do surgery in a facility that doesn't allow me to choose who I work with. So I don't control those, that staff. I don't control those people because I don't work for the hospital. I'm, I'm an independent surgeon. So I come into a hospital but every hospital that I go to knows who I want to work with. Mm-hmm. And so who works with me in the operating room is very carefully selected because I'm looking for people that care, number one, and number two, that have the talent to do the job with me because I'm only one of many people. So in the OR, let me give you an example. I have a circulating nurse who, what do they do? They do everything. They pull all the instruments I need. They pull the stitches I need. They pull everything, this, the fluid to irrigate the wound out. So I, I really rely on them. Then I have usually two, two reps, two equipment reps who even with a talented scrub technician is walking them through the process. Okay. He's going to use this side screw. Cause I, I have a, a table of what I put in every spine. So if I'm doing, for example, an L4 to S1 fusion, I have L4, L5, S1. 
how big are my screws? 7.5 by 45 millimeters or whatever. And it's all listed out. And they look at that and they're walking through that process and telling the scrub technician, okay, this is what he's going to need next. He's going to need this next. And a good scrub tech who's been working, working with me for they're a while. They're thinking ahead for you. They're thinking in the next steps, right? Mm -hmm. they don't, they're not waiting for me to ask for an instrument because again, the goal is never speed, but the goal is efficiency because efficiency is important to keep patients safe. You don't want to keep a patient in the operating room more than they need to be, but you also don't want to compromise by going too quickly. So that team is really important. We have an anesthesiologist typically in the room. Um, sometimes a CRNA, sometimes a CRNA plus an anesthesiologist. And then I have a, usually a first assistant. When I do an anterior surgery of the spine, I, I very commonly will go to the front of the spine because it's a better surgery. It just is. I go to the front and the back. I don't just go to the front. I don't just go to the back. Most of my patients, when they need a fusion, I do surgeries where I do a combined anterior posterior surgery, which uh, what for a long time had kind of fallen by the wayside. And now more people are starting to see the benefits of the surgical outcomes from that procedure. It's a little bit longer. I would say, what's the duration of that? Like when you're talking in terms of time. So if I do an anterior posterior, for example, two level fusion in my OR, it's probably four to six hours. If I do three levels, it, it goes up, you know, hour, two hours, yeah. every, every level. So Again, it's not about how fast you get off the table. If you're stable on the OR table and there's a good anesthesiologist managing your anesthesia, yeah, you should be. you're in good hands, mm -hmm. right? You know, the only time that you want your surgeon to go fast is if it looks like you're being compromised medically, if you're struggling medically through the surgery. But otherwise, who cares if it's six to eight hours? You know, for you, it feels like a five minute nap, right? So you want that surgery to be done. You get one chance to get it. I want it right. right. Yeah, you want it done right. So yeah. You don't want somebody that brags about how they finished your surgery in an hour and a half and high fives each other. You know, I mean, that's I've heard of those stories. I know, that's right. never going to happen in my war. So I love going super micro on on workflows and successful individuals. So what is how do you start your day? What do you eat? Oh, so, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm all about protein. I'm a protein guy. Um, I like whey protein because whey protein has be the best thermogenic potential, in my opinion. So I like high fast absorption whey protein. So them. I'm a, I'm a whey what protein. What do you put in your, is it a shake? It's pretty simple. So I, I just use a whey protein. I usually use two scoops, which is around 40 to 60 grams. So it's high, okay. high protein. And I usually drink it with unsweetened coconut milk. That's, that's all. And does that carry you through your morning? It or carries me you... through my morning to the afternoon. And then I drink a, 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 I guess a bottle of water, 16 ounces of water. That's usually all I eat in the morning. And then, and then lunch, if we get a lunch break, I, sometimes I don't, sometimes I work all the way until, till dinner. Sometimes I work through dinner. Sometimes I get out at 10. Sometimes I get out at 11. Sometimes if I'm doing an anterior, posterior fusion, there's about a 15 minute break when I finish the front before they get the new bed in and they turn the patient so that I can do the backside. That's when I usually grab a drink and something to eat real quick. So, and that what, carries you through. I feel like yeah, I'm getting so hungry. I, I, you know, one of the things being an athlete taught me is that when you're focused, you don't notice yeah, your general you. or how you function. Yeah. So for right. me, when I'm doing surgery, it's like, it's like sports. I mean, I'm wearing a lead gown. I'm under hot lights. It's hot in there. I'm physically working against the muscle. I have to retract the muscle with one arm. I have to drill screws in with the other hand. It's a very physically demanding job. And so being physically fit is a huge part of it. You can't do this job well if you're weak at all. So if you're right. weak, you'll see weak surgeons put screws in straight. You see patients that you see stronger surgeons put them in converging. You want the tips of your screws to converge because it has better pullout strength. It has better biomechanical stability. So being fit really helps you to do that. It also helps you to do the surgeries that last eight hours, 10 hours, 12 hours, 15 hours. A lot of surgeons just physically can't do that. So they're going to do your surgery as quickly as possible. 
Unfortunately, that means that those results may be compromised. And, you know, there are some surgeons that probably disagree with me, but that's my very strong opinion and nobody's so, going to change it. Because I love this because you're obviously physically fit and this is a very, as you said, a physic- even a physically taxing job. What does your workout look like normally on your week? Your so, week I, week? you know, I work, I still work out like it's old, old school style bodybuilding. You know, I'll do a four day split. I four do, days. Okay. Yeah. I still yeah. do the stuff that I used to do years ago. And for me, it's worked. You know, I have a lot of friends as, as they've gotten into their forties because I'm 49 now, but what they'll, what they'll do is they'll do an all body, like a universal body workout. They'll do the gladiator type workouts and the functional exercises. And that works for them, you know, but for me, I like having some muscle mass. I like to have flexibility. I'm a martial artist in, in addition to being an ex-athlete. So I stretch a lot. I stretch twice a day. And Stretching I to... is like something that I feel like we don't, we don't talk enough about and it is so important. Stretching is the key. I mean, I think one of the things that that, that leads us to having pain in our joints and pain in our spine as we get older is lack of flexibility. Some people can't even bring their, their ankle yeah. up to put their shoe on, you know, or their sock on. They can't flex their hip to a degree that they can externally rotate it and put their ankle on their knee. I mean, that's, that's a problem when you can't bend over and touch your toes and you should be flexible. I, I think one of the most important things is flexibility. It's never good enough to be flexible or strong. Yeah. You should definitely have a balance of muscular strength and flexibility. Swollen flexi. Yeah, you have to be both. And, and so in order to function and, right. and to be able to do your job and to live a life free of pain, I think it requires both, right? So I stretch twice a day and then I still do a four-day split. Well, my split, mix, I mix it up a lot. So I can do muscle confusion where sometimes I'll do this exercise versus that exercise, but I still usually do about a 16-set regimen per body part. So I'll do, for example chest and triceps. I'll do back and biceps. I'll do shoulders on their own day because there's so many muscles that make up the shoulder. Yeah. And I think when you understand the body to that extreme, it almost like you're like, okay, I know what I'm working out. So it's like you're, I did a a muscle contest three years, two years ago. That's impressive. I've never, never, I've never been crazy enough to we're devoted enough to the you diet. You probably could because you're disciplined enough. I, it's yeah. the diet. Honestly, half the, the time is, is the, the diet. Part, the yeah. diet is so hard. But it's interesting because when you actually know what you're working out, it was such a really eye-opening experience for me where I'm like, okay, I'm not only shredding, but you're building at the same time. And yeah. it's such a complex thing to be able to do. And when you see those results, it's like, whoa. Yeah, it's it's really a science. You know, It that, is. It's pretty amazing. But So for me, I still work out like that. And, and I still do things that allow me to stay, uh, functionally, mo- uh, functionally mobile and functionally active. So I still box. I have my, I have four kids. So we do boxing with a boxing coach every week. I do martial arts with my kids. So we stay active in different ways than just lifting weights. My kids all do sports. So I try to stay active in that way, but I stretch on the side of that. I stretch twice a day. So I really feel like tapping more into this, that nutrition is such a foundation of so much of this, right? We have our society is just overweight. People are not healthy nutrition wise. Like, obviously I know where you're at with, with protein and things like that, but what does your normal diet look like? And what are things that you like wish every patient would do? So I I think, you know, there are so many different diet trends and fads and, you know, I, I, I think they all have merit, right? I don't think any of them necessarily are bad. Um, but, but I have friends that do keto. I have friends that are paleo and I have friends that do intermittent vegan. fasting and vegans. Yeah. Uh, you know, my brother-in-law is a vegan. Personally for me, I, I understand the thermogenic potential of proteins. And so you get more bang for your buck out of, out of whey protein, and right. animal protein. So I still 
consume animal protein as opposed to like pea protein yeah, or yeah pea right. or pumpkin so i'm i'm very heavy into i still like dairy I know, I know people don't like dairy and you know this is an individual thing you have to see what your body responds i to. agree so I, I eliminate some of my dairy i don't eliminate all of my dairy but instead of drinking skim milk now i do coconut milk. that's how we are yeah so i mm-hmm. i just have kind of geared it towards what my body responds to it's like working out you can't go to the gym and copy your friend's workout and have the same results. You have to see what your body responds to. Some people need to have minimal carbs. Some people are fine with carbs. Mm-hmm. And I think some of that is genetic. So you I have agree. to see how your body responds. And that's kind of the science, as you experience in, of the fitness world, when you're trying to really fine tune all of your little, you're, you're trying to tweak everything down to the details so that when you walk on stage, you're dry and muscular. Yes. You look full. It's very hard to do that. You know, that's that's really well, and science. it's interesting because my coach just happened to this. He would literally tell us some of you because I went through um, it was a coaching like they were professionals coaching amateurs, basically. And it was a husband wife duo. And the coach literally looked at us and was like, some of you are going to do the exact same thing as the person next to you. And some of you are going to get abs and some of you are not. Right. Do not expect the same results. You just have to work out to what your body is telling you. And um, I feel like for me personally, this is be really annoying for me to say this, but my body responded very well to the to the program. Like yeah. when I shredded down to that diet, the it was protein, veggies, um, carbs limitedly, but on days that I was lifting, like you could, I could literally feel a difference. And I think it's really interesting because it was the first time I tapped into it. And I feel like we're in this swing where finally nutrition and health is really coming to the core of, I feel like where it should be in, right. in healthcare. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think over the years, if you see people that look the most fit, a lot of times they weren't healthy. And a lot of times people that are healthy don't look very fit, right? You know, for me, it's a combination of you want to look the part, yeah. but you want to have, you want to be healthy on the inside, right? So mm-hmm. it's hard to find that balance. You know, I have friends that are probably super healthy, but they don't look really great on the outside, right? And then people that, that look really healthy and inside, they're, they're killing themselves, you know, with growth hormone and testosterone and all these things that I think are bad for you over time, especially when not carefully controlled. But I, so my diet, if you look at my diet, it's usually a protein shake in the morning. And then I'll do chicken, some kind of chicken salad, right? That's, and I weigh 220. So I do chicken salad and then I probably eat a relatively beefy dinner. My, my wife cooks really healthy mm-hmm. dinners for my family. And so I'll eat, I eat red meat, you know, maybe two, three times a week. Yeah. And, you know, there's potentially downside to that. I like Akaoshi steak for a specific purpose. Yeah, but I'm, now there's mixed stuff coming out. I think with all these keto diets, yeah. like now we're going back to like, okay, maybe this is not as bad it's, as we thought yeah. it was. And there's some, I think, red meat that's better than others. You know, right. Akaoshi steak is a Kobe style beef that I really love. And it's it's been called a heart healthy steak, you know, because the FDA has recognized the oleic acid in it. It's almost like olive oil. And so it's not as bad as typical red meat. So, you know, but I think everything in moderation, right? So if, if you're in a competition, then it's going to be much more geared towards being perfectly fit for that competition. But it's even those elite athletes, they do that for a day and then they go back to normal. But I, what I want to live at is a state of, of something that I can, a homeostasis really, where I can kind of maintain you can maintain the ex, of yeah of what you need to do because yeah. you need to perform yeah so what i do is i look at my body i'm like okay i'm starting to lose the visibility of my abs i'm going to tighten it up for a little bit and then when i see my abs come back then I, then i'm okay Good. but every once in a while i'll eat something that i like you know a dessert is probably not the healthiest thing in the world but you know you gotta it, live a little it, yeah you gotta live i'm a foodie i love yeah. to eat i love to eat good food so i just modify how i eat and sometimes i'm real tight sometimes i'm r- more relaxed but I enjoy food. I enjoy life. I, you know, I want to look fit, 
but I also don't want to be so strict. I'm not on, on a stage competing, you know? Yeah. Um, but I, I want to be proud of the way I look, but more than that, I want to be able to function and do this very physically demanding job. Spine surgery, orthopedic surgery is very physically demanding. And I want to be able to do that job well into my 60s, hopefully. Yeah. Well, and okay. So something else that is on the forefront and that I'm absolutely obsessed with and how I got connected with you is this delicious skincare line that you have formulated. So, okay. Because you mentioned being not only, you know, you're medical, but you're also creative. Like, where did this come from? How did this all start? I want to deep dive on this. Yeah. So, so I, I think it's like all things necessity is a mother of invention, right? So um, it, a lot of people that know me as a spine surgeon, this is my 20th, 20 plus something year as a doctor, my 17th year as a spine surgeon. So most people, especially where I'm from, know me as a spine surgeon. So it seems a little bit off topic. Like, wh- why the heck did you get into skincare? Why would a spine right, surgeon, it, totally. orthopedic surgeon, Valid question. it doesn't match the specialty. So there's a couple things that a lot of people don't even know, but um, I'll tell you that in, in a second. But what happened was initially, my wife is half Vietnamese, so she's half Asian and a lot of... of Asian and ethnic stunningly women. beautiful by the way oh, and you. your daughter holy thank smokes thank you thank you yeah so they um inside too more importantly they're so beautiful oh, on the inside. So nice. yes but, beautiful family thank you but what happened when my wife is after our our third kid she started to develop pretty significant melasma which is you know that mask of pregnancy this the, the staining and the discoloration around the face and so she has literally tried everything over the course of years and as as a non-dermatologist, as a non-skin specialist, you know, it was never, I never really intervened in how she was getting care for that, you know, but I am still a doctor. So years and years of trying anything and everything you can imagine uh, from over-the-counter preparations to prescription medications, prescription solutions, you can name them. She's literally tried them all. I have friends that are facial plastic surgeons that have tried all these prescriptions, even laser treatments. And actually she got worse with some of them and it it certainly didn't get better with any of them. And so she got to the point where she was really struggling with it and was really upset about how it had discolored her, her skin. So I, I found a product from a friend of mine who's a cosmetic surgeon. And so I gave it to her and it was from a company that uh, is based in California and based in LA and she used it and it was effective. It was the first product that she had ever used. It actually had an impact on the discoloration of her skin and it started to really fade it. It didn't go all the way away, but it was better than anything she had ever tried before. And so when it ran out, I called the company because they had stopped making it. So I called them as a physician, really looking for my wife. I was calling to see if there was an opportunity or an option to continue making it. How could I get this product? And they basically said that the amount of of hydroquinone in it was too high for an over-the-counter product. And so they were pulling it from the market and they were no longer making this product. I said, wait a second. I'm a physician. Uh, is it something that I can prescribe for my wife? Is it something that I could get for her, for her? So we started talking about the potential of as being a physician, as, as a doctor, how I could get this product. And, and we got to the point where we agreed that I could do it if I carried it myself. And so we started talking about the preparation and together with their estheticians and their, and their chemist, their, their product came to me for my wife. That was the initial goal was to treat my wife's melasma. So I called it melasma fade because it was to treat her melasma, but it has other benefits too. It, any kind of disc, discoloration, it, it fades freckles. It, it fades any sun damage. And Which so, product is that? This is the melasma fade. Melasma fade. Okay. So I gave it to her and, and it worked even better than the other product. And not only did it work better than the other product, it, we had emollients added to it so that it wouldn't be so harsh on the skin. So a lot of times these 
these products will not only they'll fade the skin, the, the skin discoloration, but they'll destroy the skin and the barrier of the skin becomes really exposed and raw and it's, it, it burns, it's uncomfortable. And so we had added for a formulation that actually had emollients in it that soothed the skin as, as it was lightening the skin. And it was extremely effective. It took about a month and her melasma disappeared. But on top of that, I also learned that because I started researching about skincare products, I, I learned that one of the main culprits and causes of skin discoloration, of course, is sun exposure, right? Right. And so she always felt because she's ethnic, she didn't have to protect her skin. So she never wore sunscreen. Mm-hmm. And I'm the, guilty. I was yeah, so guilty of no, that. Because, you know, people yeah. that don't burn, they yeah. fit, well, I can you get tan. tan. You get tan, yeah, but I you just don't really. tan and I'm good. Right? Mm-hmm. But the problem is that over the course of years, that really does damage to your skin. You know, the UVA, UVB light, and even the blue light we're exposed to every day on our computers and on our phones starts to really wreak havoc. The, the oxidative, oxidative damage to our skin and the free radicals that are released in our skin really starts to damage our skin. So it ages, it wrinkles, it darkens, everything that we don't want as we get older. So I realized that I needed a sunscreen. So I went back to them and we talked about a sunscreen and we got to the point where we started talking about all the products I needed. I was like, well, I have kids that are, that are teenagers that have very mild, but any acne on a teenager is, is horrendous, right? It's like a yes. world ending problem. So I talked to them about a, an acne line and I talked to them. We, so we basically, yeah, got in the my point. day, the only thing available was like proactive yeah. and it was just like two products and it yeah. was like the most for me, it didn't work. I'll just put it out there. Like yeah. it just didn't work for me, but I love this. So you, yeah, there's you know, not, not, not to call it any product, but there are a <laughs> lot of products out there that may have an, an, an impact, but they have this very hyperactive inflammatory, skin like irritating effect you know there's a lot of chemicals and there's a lot of products that where you're using it and your skin looks beet red it looks irritated it looks swollen and the acne doesn't necessarily improve that much right so one of the things that i looked for was a product that would actually penetrate the skin more deeply um and the these a lot of the products that we started working on they have carriers that penetrate the epidermis the superficial layer of the skin to get them deeper the acne line has a micronized the first world's first ever micronized benzoyl peroxide. So benzoyl peroxide is great, but if it doesn't penetrate into the dermis, it's not going to really get rid of the deep acne, right? So this product penetrates the skin. So we started looking at just carrying products that would have an impact that would literally change the things that were impacting people in my life. And in addition to that, I always, when I do surgery, I always want, even though inside, I try to make it perfect. I also want it to be outside. I want it to be perfect too, because I'm very cosmetic minded. So I don't want people walking around with huge scars, unsightly scars. Yeah. So I've always prescribed Love that. vitamin E. And so vitamin E massage, they start at six weeks, but vitamin E is pretty basic. And so I started talking to them about a cream or a solution to treat scars. And so that's how the restorative cream came about. So I that, love that, yeah. by the way. Is that the one that's yellow? Yeah, it's yellow. It's what is what is the yellow tint? Yellow is probably this is sunflower. It has oh, it sunflower is. Okay. oil in it. You know, it, it has a lot of emollients. It has um, like almond oil, sunflower oil. Oh my god, it, you guys! Yeah. Seriously, yeah. this cream is to die for. I am obsessed with it. Like I, I think I got this product about two or three weeks ago, and oh my god, oh, yeah. so it this, feels so good. It is one of the favorites. It's it's one of those products that. It doesn't clog the pores, so it doesn't make you break out. Right. But it has so many different products that are good at that at blood flow. It, so it has vitamin K in it. It has it has products that really help multiple problems. It helps with seborrhea. It helps with dark circles under the eye. It helps, helps as just a, a traditional skin barrier 
restoration device. It's really heavy, but it doesn't, it's not greasy. It doesn't even feel that yeah, heavy though. Yeah, it's, it's thick, but it doesn't get that oily or heavy consistency and doesn't clog your pores. And, and I think the, the key to all these products is that a lot of them have no irritants in them. They don't have any, any chemicals. They, doesn't, they don't have no sulfates smells. or parabens. They don't have yep. anything that mm-hmm. people may be allergic to. They don't have gluten. You know, they're all cruelty-free. So one of the keys of these products was I wanted them to be in the Greenleaf program, which means that it used natural botanicals, that it didn't use chemicals. Our sunscreen is chemical-free. It's just a physical sunscreen, both the tinted and the non-tinted sunscreens. So the key was for me to, to create an effective line that wasn't because I have a lot of we have allergies and we have eczema. My kids have allergies and, you know, we live in Texas. So everybody has allergies there. Yeah. They all have they all have they sometimes will develop urticaria and, and skin uh, skin rash contact dermatitis. My youngest son had eczema for a long time. So I have to use stuff that they're not going to create an allergic reaction to. And my my older son actually used sunscreen at a, at a Bible trip one time to the beach. And he had this massive allergic reaction from over the counter sunscreen had to go to the ER. It's a $3,000 visit for me to get steroids and to try to treat his sunscreen reaction. So when you look at sunscreens out there, 72% of them have chemicals that are damaging and they don't even help prevent us from, you know, prevent the the cancer producing rays or the, the, what's something in your sunscreens that like, what is a magic ingredient you have to have? Or what is, you know, part of your sunscreen that, so for me, it's titanium and zinc, right? So those are the, those are the primary chemical uh, non-chemical, but but uh, mineral barriers. I think to, it's a, it's a physical barrier, literally, to the sun. And the the reason that a lot of like my daughter and my wife love the tinted sunscreen is because it's kind of a it's a it's not skin greasy. Tone. Yeah, it's not. It's it's not. I love it. It gives I'm, you kind of a dewy, glowy appearance, yes. but it's mm-hmm. not greasy. It's, it's not just heavy. enough. Yeah, and it has mm-hmm. it has no chemicals in it, so that you're not going to form an allergic reaction to it, most likely. And it's just, it's just really nice consistency. A lot of times they don't even wear, they used to wear makeup every day, a foundation. Most of the days they don't even wear a foundation anymore because the sunscreen does the trick, you know? So, yeah. but a physical sunscreen I think is the key and we all need it guys included. Yes. Yeah. We're going to get to that yeah. umbrella term for this, um, like medical grade products versus yeah. over the counter. Like, let's talk about that. Like, what's the difference? Like what? So Your, usually yeah. the difference is medical grade. It's obviously it's medical grade. So it has, it's stronger. It has active ingredients, which over the counter products don't active ingredients actually have an active, uh, a component of a product that actually has a more lasting effect, more eff- efficacious uh, treatment options. When you do these things, when you do over the counter, they have to have preservatives in them. So they, they last a long time on the shelf. Medical grade products can't sit on the shelf for six months because they aren't going to last that long. The preservatives have been removed. But as a result of that, that allows them to be more effective. They can be stronger because they're medical grade. That's why you, you have to have a doctor behind these products that, you know, some medical grade products are carried by med spas, but you can't just, you can't find it on the Walgreens, you know, countertop, you know, it has to be carried by a physician. It has to be backed by a physician. And so that's the difference between medical grade, grade and over the counter, basically effic- efficacy. So two problems I want to present, um, darkness under the eyes and mask knee. What are your products? So the products for under the eyes, there's two. One is the retinol eye cream, which has vitamin K and retinol. So it works on fine lines and wrinkles, but it also the vitamin K increases blood flow. So that's the key to that product. And that's something that I personally use every day uh, or every night, really. It's more of a night cream. The restorative cream also has a very, very beneficial effect for under the eyes. It's a very strong moisture and barrier uh, reproducer. So if you have a damaged skin barrier, whether you have uh, eczema or you've had laser treatment or you've had injections or you've had 
anything that's damaged your skin, surgery, anything like sunburn, it, the restorative cream works on all that. And because it has vitamin K and it has the emollients in it, it'll soothe the skin, it'll increase blood flow, it decreases inflammation. So there's a lot of, of potent benefits to the restorative cream. So for under the eye and for a general moisturizer, restorative cream, and then the, the retinol eye cream. And then for maskne, so maskne, one of the things that we see with maskne, and, and I think number one, the basics of maskne are you have to choose the material that you cover your face with very carefully. I do not recommend a cotton cover. I don't think that anything mm -hmm. that holds moisture is wise to use. And a lot mm. of people are using what oh, we call gaiters. You know, they're just sliding a sleeve over their face or they're using cotton masks. And it sounds good because they're light, but they also hold moisture. It's just like in the OR when you're in the gym, which shirts hold moisture, who looks like they're sopping wet and who doesn't. You know, you want some type of... Like a dry fit. You want a dry fit type material or you want a material that's made out of a of something that's not porous, but it's more of a, a light material so that it can breathe. You know, you want to be able to have micro micrometer 0.1 or 0.25 micrometer level protection from viruses and bacteria, but you don't want something that's, that's so heavy that it's just going to be saturated by sweat and moisture and saliva, believe it or not. So anything that's literally yeah, against your mouth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I would have something that kind of cones away from your face. I'm not a fan of bandanas or like, like I said, gaiters. I think it should be a light material, a silk material, a dry fit type material, or even a, even a, a fiber. I, I use a, a, a product that's made out of Korea. That's a kind of a light, light fiber. Oh, I, I think I've seen those. Um, and they're kind of designed well, cause they're like yeah, away from the mouth. They cone away from your mouth mm -hmm. so that you're not absorbing the moisture from your mouth. And I would also sweat. like to say, we were talking about this earlier before, but I have this new profound appreci appreciation for everyone who works in the OR, who has to wear these masks for yeah. these crazy amount of hours. Cause I'm like, I, I've never had, I mean, we do it for procedures at the bedside in the NICU, yeah. but not for six plus hours and you know what I mean? At a time yeah, well, until know, we, now. Well, we do cheat a little bit. You know, the OR environment is very carefully controlled. Um, so when we're in the OR, it's, we make it cool, right? We don't want to sweat on the wound. We don't want to, we don't want to be hot. So our masks aren't absorbing sweat. We're not sweating. I actually wear a cool vest because I have to wear a lead gown when I'm doing surgery because of the x-rays that we take. So I have a cool vest that circulates cold water under my lead gown oh, so that I don't get hot in the operating room. That's, you know, I'm a little bit of a devo in that way, but you know, that's one of my biggest, <laughs> Sorry, all you surgeons are divas in your own well, little I mean, way. You know, for me, it's all about the patient, but when it comes to being yeah. comfortable, I have to be comfortable to do these longer surgeries Yeah. so that I'm not rushing through the surgery. And, right. and most importantly, I'm not sweating in the operating room. I want to be cool yes. and comfortable you need to so feel I can focus on what I need to focus on. Mm -hmm. um, but so that's, that's something that's really important. The environment there and our masks don't have to really protect us from environmental. We're not inhaling viruses or bacteria. We're trying to prevent ourselves from having any, any spray. Like when we talk, anything that can come from our mouth and fall into the wound. So the goal is a little bit different. When we sneeze, we actually sneeze forward, believe it or not, because if we sneeze and we turn our head, then the sides of our masks tend to be open. So this, the, the, the sneeze can tr you know, tr kind of track to the right side or mm -hmm. to the left side. So the masks aren't really serving the same purpose. Even I, I wear masks for 12, 15, 20, 30 hours sometimes. And when I wear a mask and I'm talking to a patient in the clinic or when I'm wearing a mask and I'm trying to work out, it's a struggle for me. And I'm, I'm a guy who does long surgery. So it's not quite the same, you know, see, just, to, know. just to be honest. But, and the other thing I would say about mask knee is we have an acne control line. There's three products that really are pretty amazing. And I, and I say that from personal experience, my kids, Again, they don't I need have, to try these because I've been struggling myself with some. Yeah, so masks you know, the beauty of it is that they reestablish hyaluronic acid, which is the, the the 
It's the product in our skin that holds water. It's the product in our joints. It's a product in our, in our cartilage that holds water. And it's something that we all lose as we get older. And it's also something that we lose when we're wearing a mask for extended periods of time. So number one, I would be careful about the kind of product you wear, what kind of material is on your mask, your, ma your mask is made of. Number two, I'd want something that reestablishes hyaluronic acid, reestablishes the barrier. You want a moisturizer. So you want to go before you put a mask on, you want a moisturizer on your skin so it doesn't stick to and abrade and peel off the superficial layers of your skin every time you take it off. I actually use a mask with an adhesive so that I don't fog up my surgical glasses or my, my personal glasses when I'm in clinic and that adhesive can start to wreak havoc on your skin. So I always make sure my, my skin is moisturized. I use my ultra recovery cream as both a post shave balm, but also as a moisturizer. And so that's something that I recommend. Keep moist, keep your skin moist, um, with, with a, a really healthy, a real light uh, cream. And then the acne products are really good. If you start to break out, you want to reestablish that skin barrier, but you also want to use benzoyl peroxide. If you're starting to see acne lesions forming on your skin. So those products, like I said earlier, they have a micronized benzoyl peroxide. They have anti-inflammatory properties. They really help to reestablish the natural barrier of your skin, but they also help get rid of any acne causing bacteria. I want to deep dive into, um, a couple of skincare ingredients, retinol. Okay. What's yeah. the benefit in retinol? Like what's so retinol is basically vitamin A. It's a, it's a really strong um, it's a really strong antioxidant. So there are some vitamins that are strong antioxidants. Basically, A, C, and E are the are the, okay. are the strongest. And, ones. and obviously, vitamin C is highly recommended by skincare. Yeah. You know, so I'm curious. Like, so retinol is one of those products that helps skin turnover. It turns the skin over. It has antioxidant properties. And you want to the reason that our skin stays youthful is because our skin continues to turn over, right? So. You want hyaluronic acid to maintain the moisture of your skin so it doesn't dry out. It doesn't look wrinkled and, and, and dry. Dry is never good. Our tissue should always be moist and full of water. So hyaluronic acid is an important one. But what retinol A does, or retin-A or retinol does, or tretinoin is another way to, to say retinol, right? These products all have the ability to turn over the skin. They have antioxidant properties. Most of the damage that we see in our skin happens from exposure to chemicals, to the environment, to the, to the sun, and all of those things cause free radicals. What free radicals do to our skin is the damage to our, our cells starts to release free electrons. Those free electrons, the free radicals are, are they're surrounding our tissue and they float around our tissue looking for oxygen steal it, to steal it from another, another cell. So when it steals that, it starts to cause rapid disease and death of our tissue. So you want to reestablish that you want to prevent oxidative damage. So you want to protect your skin from the oxidative oxidative damage of both blue light and UV light. So retinol A does that vitamin C does that. It also reestablishes collagen. You want synthesis of the collagen to be triggered. So one of the products that we have, the collagen youth serum, the whole purpose of that and the injection free serum is collagen synthesis. Oh my God. The, yeah. the injection free serum. So this has been my new routine is we'll be laying down, you know, winding down at night and I have, a roller and I do a couple drops and I've been rolling it on the skin oh, good, at yeah. night and oh my gosh I feel like my skin glow after I do that is yeah. it's amazing I don't know and it could just it just feels like plump almost like plump and just smoother yeah that product has you know hyaluronic acid and then it also reestablishes collagen one and collagen three which are which is the youth collagen right and the amount of change in our collagen makeup after using that solution, we actually have clinical studies showing 179% increase in production of collagen one, 194% increase in collagen three. It's really an amazing product. It increases skin elasticity 
within two weeks by 50%. Who would you recommend that product for? Everybody. Yeah. I it's use so that good. Product. So I use that product every day. You know, I'll, if, whenever you're ready, I'll tell you what my routine is. And then I can sort of tell you what I Ooh, think. Ooh, let's deep dive into your routine. Yeah. Can we hear this, please? So, so, you know, I'm a little metro. So for me, <laughs> what I do is there was, for the longest time, I would use a traditional anti, like a shave balm, like a, right. a post shave balm. And then I realized, well, gosh, my ultra recovery cream has everything that I need in a post-shave balm. It reestablishes your skin barrier. It has ox- it has antioxidants in it. It has emollients in it to soothe the skin to decrease inflammation. So I started using my ultra recovery cream. So my routine is I shave every day. Okay, I was just about to ask, like, how yeah. often are you doing I that? I, I have very little hair, to be honest. But <laughs> I, I'm, you know, I, yeah, I but shave. there's a lot of guys out there that who do. So yeah. this actually is a, probably a really great tip for them. So I shave every day, and then I use my ultra recovery cream as a post-shave balm. And then when I'm done with that, then I use the injection-free serum on my entire face, including under my eyes. How many drops? Do you I use like a whole dropper? I two or three drops on my forehead, two drops on my cheeks, and then a drop on my neck. Okay. Right? So I, I, I massage that in really well. And then I use my retinol eye cream in the morning. Uh, and I massage it even on the top lid, believe it or not, because mm-hmm. I want to protect that. Nobody ever thinks about the top lid Everybody thinks about right. the bottom lid. So your top lid can start to experience a lot of sun damage. And actually, and the droop. sun hits it more directly a lot mm-hmm. of times in your under eye. And so mm-hmm. I, I put it on my, my my top lid as well. And then sometimes I will use the collagen youth, but usually I use the collagen youth on, at a different time of the day. I usually use that at night. So then once I'm done with that, then I will use a sunscreen. So I massage the sunscreen into my skin. And that's pretty much my What do you use for moisturizer? Routine. So my ultra recovery cream is a, is a perfect moisturizer. So I, I, I don't want a real heavy moisturizer. I don't really need it. So I use the ultra recovery cream, but if you, if you're someone who's doing skin treatments, if you're doing laser, if you're doing, if you're doing retinol, if you start, start using anything that starts to damage the barrier of your skin, if you get sunburn, then I think the restorative cream is the perfect moisturizer. And then my wife likes the restorative cream better than anything. That's her favorite product. So she uses that. I think she uses that nightly as a night cream. So that's a product that I would recommend you use every night. And then what I do at night is I always use the collagen use serum and the retinol eye cream. And then I also put hair growth serum in. I'm 49, so I want to maintain the volume of my hair. So I do that every night as well. So those are the three, three products that I use every night. Okay, so you're speaking directly to all of these guys. And I think we're on this forefront of guys are finally getting around to skincare. And I know there are so many people who have this, you know, you're getting ready for work right now, ladies, and you have this blasting right now, this podcast. So you're speaking to all the guys out there. What are some skincare tips and tricks for all of the guys? Because this is, we're on the forefront of this. I think it's important. And, you know, it's something that I feel like it's so, we used to be in this, thought process of it's like a skincare is like vain or it's you know it's something that girls do but I actually think on the contrary well if you want if you want to stay young if you're a person who wants to look good into your 50s and 60s and 70s maybe even your 80s I think that it's very important that you take care of your skin our skin is our largest organ right it's exposed constantly to environmental and, and toxic damage from 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 things that we eat, things we're exposed to, chemicals in the air. And I think that one of the most important things, especially we're on our phone all the time, blue light, um, our computer screens, blue light, UV light from outside, you have to protect your skin because what happens is no matter how great you look when you're 20, how do you want to look when you're 50 is the question. And I think that a lot of guys forget. Like you. <laughs> well, Let me tell you guys, your skin looks so good. Thank you very much. 
So, you know, for me, I think that it's important that you take really good care of your skin so that especially guys who are into the way they look, you, you're working out. Why would mm-hmm. you neglect your skin? Mm-hmm. You know, you're trying to stay fit. You work out every day and then you neglect your skin, you know, and a lot of people like to do outdoor activities, especially here. The weather here is so amazing. So people are outside all the time. You should go outside. You need vitamin D for many reasons, including your bone and your skin health, but you don't want so much that it starts to damage your skin. So you have to do things to protect your skin. One of the most important things I think anyone and everyone should use is a sunscreen and it should always be a physical sunscreen. You should not use a chemical based sunscreen and a a chemical sunscreen. There's tinted, there's non-tinted, whichever one suits you. Uh, Women tend to like the tinted, but the, the sunscreen is huge and important for everyone and anyone. I don't care how opposed you are to taking care of your skin. And then on top of that, like I said, I really think that the ultra recovery cream is a, an amazing post-shave uh, balm or anytime you get sunburned, mm, yeah. that or the restorative cream to reestablish the skin barrier. And then I like the collagen youth serum. You know, collagen is the key to keeping elasticity in your skin. You want your skin to have, your skin to have elasticity. You want it to be tight and you want it to be plump. So collagen youth serum, injection-free serum really focuses on- You guys are hearing a lot of trends here. Yeah, so mm, collagen youth, hint, hint. injection-free. And then if you're- starting to lose your hair or if you want to maintain the fullness of your hair and believe it or not my five-year-old daughter we put the hair growth serum in her hair because she swims and then the chlorine damages her hair so the inject the injection free serum is good for guys but the hair growth serum is too and the inject and the hair growth serum is good for anyone all the way down to five and anyone who wants to maintain the fullness of their hair because what happens to, to our hair with time is that we start to get the the cycle of hair growth starts to become shorter the anaphase is the growth cycle, is the growth phase of our hair, and then the telophase. So what happens is telophase is the death, right? And the anaphase is the growth of our hair. That cycle starts to shorten as we get older. And so even women start to get thinner hair as they get older. Mm-hmm. So one thing that I think anyone and everyone should do is use the, the hair growth serum because what it does, that and the shampoo and conditioner, what they do is they actually block DHT. They actually increase the size of the follicle with they decrease the risk of breakage of the hair follicle because it's getting thicker, it's getting stronger. And and that those products, I think, are universal. How would you use that, the hair I growth? use the hair growth. I, my, well, my daughter, we put it on my five-year-old after she gets out of the pool, after she showers. And then and it strengthens the root, the if root, you will. Yeah, yeah. And it increases the growth cycle. So it, it decreases the telophase and increases the growth cycle. So the hair is around longer. It grows longer. It breaks less often. It's thicker. It's more full. So it, it really helps your hair. So... That's something that I use every night. You can use it twice a day. It depends on what you put your in your hair. Some It doesn't have an oily or a heavy consistency at all. You could definitely do it and still style your hair. If you use mousse or gel or whatever you do in your hair, you could still do that. If you want your hair to look dry and, and, and full, you may not want to use it in the morning. So it kind of depends on what your hairstyle is. I use it at night when I go to bed, and I think it's an amazing product. So you're talking to uh, Katie here who's who has, let's say, a C-section, a stretch mark, a surgical wound. Do you have any tips or tricks for for this? Yeah, for so her? any scar, any scar, and even spider veins or, or seborrheic keratosis, um, all those products really, I think the restorative cream is the key. It helps spider veins, it helps damaged skin, and it helps scar because it has emollients, it has sunflower, it has almond, but it also has bamboo and it has vitamin K. So what happens is one of the things that we want to get our wounds to heal quickly and, and to get them to be supple and thin is you want to eliminate the scar between the different layers of our skin, our, our epidermis and our dermis. And our if we have deep surgery, our, the fascia of the muscle kind of all gets stuck together. So if you see any, any scar that's either thick or enfolded, that means that the layers are now stuck together. When you move your skin, it should move separately. The epidermis and the dermis should slide 
across the deeper layers of your tissue. If your scar is stuck, then I think the scar, the scar cream, which is the restorative cream, it has more than one purpose, is, is the key to that. So I would at six weeks from a wound, so once a wound is made, it usually heals by six weeks. You have to look at the wound to make sure. But once it looks like a scar and not a wound, then I start doing scar massage. And the way I recommend scar mm -hmm. massage is that you use the cream and you massage for a minimum of 15 minutes in a deep circular motion. So you put the cream on the wound, on the scar, and you push deep down on the, on the scar. And it's usually very sensitive in the beginning. Scar massage does two things. One is that it thins the thickness of the scar. It decreases, or three things really. It decreases the, the attachments of the, all the layers to one level, which is what causes that infolding and that real tight appearance. And then the other thing it does is it makes the skin real supple. So scar massage is deep and it desensitizes it when you do this deep, deep massage. So you push down deep, as deep as you can tolerate, and eventually you get deeper and deeper as your sensitivity decreases. But you push down and, and you press in a circular motion along the entire length of that wound up and down for about 10 or 15 minutes twice a day. How do you feel about vitamin E oil? What are I, your thoughts? I think vitamin E is good, but I think this is better. You know, so mm -hmm. I, like, I like the blood flow. I like the benefits of the vitamin K. I like the emollients. I like the softening effect. And then I always recommend that if you have a scar for one year, you should block it from the sun because it's that year that it's maturing. Scars mature over the course of a year, even when they're healed. They can continue to get hyperpigmented. They can get dark from exposure to the sun. So if you have a fresh scar, that's anything within the first year, cover it with that physical barrier or sunblock. And then you do your scar massage at least twice a day. And then the other thing to make the skin nice and the turnover to be fresh is use the Tretinol 1% cream. That's Those are the three things I recommend for scars. Okay. So speaking directly to, um, you know, because obviously genetics is where my head is going is obviously a big factor in skincare, but are there some tips and tricks you could suggest to avoid or stay away from, you know, nutrition, topical, environmental, things that you feel like you should 100% stay away from for your skin? Yeah. Well, you know, you're, you want your skin to have plenty of nutrients, right? So the key is, I think, I think products that are non-GMO organic products are really healthy. They, they make your body healthy from the inside to the out. There, there's probably no way to get completely away from GMO. GMO is kind of infiltrated even the organic uh, market and organic produce. But I think that the more careful you are with the way you treat your skin, things that make your skin healthy on the outside also make it healthy on the inside. So you want to eat a lot of green leafy vegetables, things that have, you know, the vitamin Bs, the vitamin Cs, you want to do vitamin A, all the things that help keep your body healthy on the inside. I think healthy, lean protein. I think things that help, you know, kind of the building blocks of our, of our tissue. That's the key. We need muscle. So you want to eat enough protein to build muscle, the amino acids, everything that builds our joints, you know, you know, things that provide, you can take supplements of hyaluronic acid in addition to using it on your skin in your skin products. So for me, if you look at my vitamin regimen, it's pretty, I was going to ask, yeah, we didn't even touch on extreme. supplements, but yeah. yeah. Do you, so for you me, like, supplements? especially with COVID, what I've done to avoid uh, the, and I think I had COVID to be honest. I don't know for sure. I think we all, I, I think know. we all have been exposed yeah, to I it, know. you know, sometime between. If you're January working at a hospital, May. I feel like somehow, I don't know. But some people haven't done very well. And I think those are the people, you know, on the rare basis, there may be some healthy people that haven't done well. But I think in general, it's people that have, they're carrying a little more weight that have other underlying medical conditions. They're the ones that really struggle through hypertension. So I think nitric oxide, this is one of the kind of the, it's a, it's a bodybuilder's product that's been around forever. I've been taking nitric oxide products since as far back as I can remember, you know, within reason, I think nitric oxide is a very important supplement. Interesting. Kind I haven't of heard un, this. Unrecognized and unappreciated. Okay. But we're starting to see the medical benefits of nitric oxide. So I think nitric oxide boosters, and believe it or not, 
beets. Is this NO, like NO that we yeah, give a gas? NO oh, interesting. Nitric oxide. So nitric oxide okay. is amazing. In the past, we thought, oh, it's really good for your muscle building because it floods the muscles with blood. It does do that, but it floods your whole body with blood. And why is that good? Well, blood brings everything to, and blood is life, right? Blood carries what? Oxygen. And we need oxygen for tissues to be healthy. It creates a vasodilation. So when it makes the blood vessels expand, it carries more blood, but it also decreases peripheral resistance, which creates what? High blood pressure. So nitric oxide is good for blood pressure problems. So if you have high blood pressure, it helps drop that. It's good for breathing because it brings oxygen to our tissues, including our lungs. It's good for our cells because it floods our cells with blood flow. It's good for muscle growth and stimulation because it floods the muscles with blood. So all of these things are in the, the, the nutrients of life are blood. So blood flow is the key and nitric oxide is one of the most amazing products out there. And Where, we, what product do you use? So I'm actually developing my own, but I like, you know, Oh, yeah, goody. So, so there's a nitric yeah. oxide product out there to give credit where it's due is there's a product um, called, called Neo 40, NEO F uh, 40, the number 40. Okay. And it's made by human H U M A N capital N. They make a really good nitric oxide product. Um, we're coming out with one that's an organic beetroot. Beets are amazing producers of nitric oxide. There are some amino acids that are well known for producing nitric oxide. But for me, it's going to be beets. Mine's going to be a beet product. Neo 40 is another good supplement. And, and like I said earlier, I think the immunity building and keeping your immune system high and, and, and keeping your numbers, especially if you're a vegan, you need to take supplements, right? So if you're not getting it in your diet, there's a, there are a lot of vitamins that we get through our diet, fat soluble vitamins that we don't get if we're vegans. So some of those products are vitamin A and vitamin D. How are you going to get those products? You have to get that through your nutritional supplements. So I personally take vitamin A, I take vitamin D3, and I take vitamin C every single day. I take nitric oxide every day. I usually take turmeric every day. Oh, interesting. I take uh, some type powdered, of powdered, I'm assuming, or do you take it in the I pill? I take it in a pill form. Okay. I, I like a, I like a collagen, I like collagen peptides. I yeah. Take we that. started, we started ancient nutrition. Yeah. Um, that's good too. I, I mean, think. there's a lot of good products out there. There's so many good companies. Yeah. Um, I like, I like collagen peptides in addition to amino acids. Some t- people don't like protein shakes, so they just do BCAAs that those are good too. Leucine, isoleucine. We do BCAs with caffeine. Yeah, that's good. Um, <laughs> I like I like those products. I like what else do I take? Um, I take omega threes. Omegas of, are big too. Yeah. I feel like D three D and omegas are like the big hot topic right now for yeah. everybody. So those those are the those are the main products that that I take on a regular basis every mm-hmm. day. Mm-hmm. When do you take them? In the morning. In the morning I with take your shake. With my shake. Okay. I think I like yeah, this. My nutrition comes in in the, in the in the artificial form in the morning. So I'm obsessed with this, but. All these things you're doing, like, how do you balance this all? When do you do you have free time off? Do you have any any free time? Yeah, you know, life is about balance. You know, I think people that are are motivated, that are that are, you know, what people consider successful, don't know, don't need as much sleep as everybody else. You yeah, know, I, I think people that I know, I, I saw an interview with Kobe Bryant one time saying he doesn't need much sleep. He sleeps four to five hours and he's recharged and he's ready to go. And he had the luxury of taking cat naps from time to time, which I don't, but. Um, for me, life is about balance. So I always want to make sure that I'm engaged with my family. My family is very important to me. I have four kids at home. So yeah, you're busy. Yeah, I'm busy. So what I do is I work really hard and my wife is amazing about that. She kind of runs everything in my life, including the practice. Yeah, she's wonderful. Um, And so in addition to that, she's a very loving and involved mom. Then one of the things she does as an involved and supportive wife is that she under, she has my kids understanding what my responsibilities are. And as important as my, my after work activities are, 
Nothing takes priority over my surgical patients. When I have a patient asleep on the table, it doesn't matter what I have planned that day. I'm, if I'm late, I'm late because that's my number one priority. So she has done a really amazing job of helping my children understand why their father's not there, why I'm even late to my own birthday sometimes, because the key for me is that doing my job very well is, is, is the most important thing at the time a patient is trusting me with their lives. But I balance it because when, I, when I'm not working, I'm with my family. Uh, and I, I spend a lot of time devoting my, my, my free time to my family because they are super important to me and I want them to know that. You know, mm-hmm. One of the things that I don't want is to be so focused on work that I neglect my family. The truth is when my kids and my wife go to sleep, all these other ideas come about. That's so, how I am. So when they're mm-hmm. asleep, that's when they go to bed. They go to bed early, like 9, 9.30. Yeah. So that's when I do all these extra extra projects. That's when I work on my skincare ideas. And that's when I work on my nutrition line. And that's when I design logos and labels and come up with new ideas. That's when at one time I had a, an educational comic that was based on superheroes that taught people about kids about STEM. Because I think STEM is really important. Called the OsteoCore. And so I spent all my time, you know, writing the, the script for this comic and created the artwork ideas and you know those things all happen when everyone else is sleeping so that my day isn't consumed with with work my day is devoted to them when I'm out of out of the OR. it sounds like you guys have a really great partnership as well as you know as a marriage and I think that's a huge piece for us too I think is to have when you are a super driven person to have that support system and the way that it fits your life is really important yeah you know my wife my wife is very insightful she's that's a very really smart cool. woman she um, like I said, she runs, she runs and it's fun when you can do it kind of together, you know, or you got it, that life dynamic. is a partnership, right? You yeah. Know? And if you can do it together and you can support each other, yeah. you know, then number one, you work together. So that really works. But in addition to that, then you understand, uh, what everybody else is going through on the other side. You know, this partnership right. is really important. She said to me many years ago, even at a young age, we got married when she was 27, I was 28 and now we're 49 and 48. But what she said to me 20 years ago was the key to a happy marriage is to choose wisely. And that's ultimately yeah. the best answer I've ever I heard. I would actually 100% yeah. agree with that. Yeah. Um, just speaking to like the provider and the creative side of you, do you, I mean, tapping into that a little bit, I feel like it's such a, a really cool aspect of you that you're not only medical, but you're also, di- you know, diving into this project. Um, how has that been for you? Well, you know, I, I like to push myself to do things that I, I, you know, I have an interest in a lot of things. You know, my life isn't unidimensional. I've always been multifaceted. I've always had multiple interests. And like I said earlier, necessity is, is the mother of, of, of invention, right? So for me, you know, things in my life where I see a need or I feel like things can be improved. I've worked on designing medical products and surgical products. You know, I've done a lot of things in my life where I think there's a need or a gap that needs to be filled. And so these things I find interesting. They motivate me. They continue to make my life interesting. And I like to constantly push myself to learn and to grow and to improve on what's available. You know, I, I know for sure that when it comes to spine surgery, that we're far away from understanding the body. When it comes to anything really medical, our body is so complex. Every The more I know, the more I'm baffled and the more I'm in awe of the amazing machine that our body is. And, mm-hmm. you know, as humans, as smart as we think we are, we're far away from perfecting our treatment of the body and and what ails it so I'm constantly trying to learn and improve what I do and what I know and there's a lot of gaps in medical school you know people in the bodybuilding world talk about it all the time well doctors don't know anything about nutrition this is true you know for the most part we don't there are people out there that know way more about nutrition than physicians way more about working out than physicians I just happen to be a physician who worked out my whole life and you're and you are very invested in it 
Yeah. And I you think know, when you're me, invested in it. Because you know? I was an athlete. I read yeah. bodybuilding magazines from right. the time I was 14. I read about nutrition. I read articles from anyone and everyone. Every workout plan, every icon you know. Yeah. You know, I know what it you're takes You're a true to practitioner of it. Yeah. And then and then when I learned the medical side of it, 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 it was the other way around for me. I didn't learn nutrition and these other facets of, of health after medical school. I learned them before I was a doctor. And then I added to that the depth of knowledge that a doctor attains in medical school and medical training. And so for me, I think that that has really come together and that marriage of knowledge has really helped me to understand the body in more than just a medical level. I understand it from a fitness level, from a, a health level, from a nutrition level. And so I want to put all those things together. So when I see a patient, I'm not just talking to them as a spine surgeon. I'm talking them to them about their body, about how to rebuild their body. I'm a patient I do surgery on and they've come to me after years of pain and years of suffering. A lot of times they've gained a lot of weight. They can't exercise. They couldn't have exercised because of their issue. And so then I intervene and I do something surgical that may actually debilitate their muscles even even more, especially when we do a fusion, mm -hmm. right? So the key is to get the fusion to heal, right? So I needed them to take the nutritional supplements that boost the healing potential of the bone so that when the bone is healed, then I have to understand now what do I do? Now their priority becomes the muscle and the body and the joints. And I have to learn, I, had, I, had, I have to teach them, I have, they have to learn how to rebuild their body from scratch because the surgical intervention and the bracing and all the things we do to protect the bone so the bone can heal. And remember this, if you have a fusion, nothing matters more than the fusion. The muscle is totally irrelevant. That's a very important, I think a very important myth and misconception. A lot of doctors that don't understand how to build the body will send a surgical patient who had a fusion immediately to therapy. If you're sent to therapy, please don't do that therapy. The only therapy you should do is walk until your fusion is solid. It's similar to having a broken arm and taking your cast off and building your form because you're afraid your form is going to get skinny from the injury or the surgery. And what happens is the screws become loose, the fusion fails or the bones fail to heal. And now it doesn't matter if you have Arnold's forms, your, your muscles cannot overtake the structural integrity needed of the bone. So the bone is the priority. So I have to teach people how to build their bone and make sure their bones and their tissues and their wounds heal their nutrition and protecting it and mobilizing it. And then once the time comes where that fusion has taken, the bones are now healed as a solid unit. Then I have to teach them how to rebuild their muscle and what supplements can help them to build their muscles and what exercises can help them to build their muscle and how to protect their spine and or their body parts so that they're not coming back. I don't want a patient to ever come back to see me in the operating room. I'll see them forever as long as they want in the clinic. I don't want a repeat customer when it comes to spine surgery. I want them to be healed from top to bottom, from inside to out. So all these things are kind of an adjunct to that process of getting people to heal. And then all of these products to keep you youthful. I mean, your body, it's all about keeping you youthful. I mean, we're in search of infinite youth. And if you look at the slogan for SeerMD skincare, it's infinite youth. But all of the SeerMD products are focused on keeping your body infinitely youthful. I mean, it's, it's an unattainable goal, but it's a goal that we should all reach for. So, you know, you keep your body physically fit, keep your skin intact and healthy, keep your body healthy through the types of products you put in your body, the type of diet you follow. So that's, that's my goal. And my goal is to get people globally healthy from the inside. You to the are out. such a wealth of knowledge. I'm so thankful to have gotten you in here today. And I know, I feel like we have so many more other places that we could go with this. So I'm like, my mind is just running right now. But um, okay, so if you had a tip to any healthcare provider coming up, like, you know, your future doctors, nurses, anybody, what's a good tip you can leave with them? Well, I think I, no matter what you want to do in life, I tell my kids because none of my kids want to go to medicine. You know, medicine is not what it used to be. The reward and the outcomes will never go away. So if your goal is to have outcome driven success, 
then you can still continue to do that. But the challenges on the business side of healthcare have made it very difficult. Um, but outside of that, I think that no matter what your goal or your life's drive is, or what your desires are, your aspirations are, I think that you should always focus on attaining the knowledge that you need to be good at what you do. Not, not, not just good, but great at what you do. So seek the highest level of education you can in your field, whatever it is, at the best program or, 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 or school that you can, because ultimately that's what gives you the foundation of knowledge. The empathy has to be part of it too. So I tell everyone the key to success in life is to educate yourself. Education is something that we have complete control over. I was an athlete, right? My goal was to go to the NFL. So I tell all young people, you might be an amazing entertainer, you might be an amazing athlete, but you might not ever make it because other people decide your fate. It's one of those things that you can't completely control, right? I believe in a greater purpose than all of that. But outside of that, I mean, what you can control yourself is your education, your ability to educate yourself. So take school seriously. When you're in school, get the best grades you can. I was valedictorian in college while I played football. You know, and I think the key there is not everybody can do that, but you want to push yourself to that level. You want to you want to focus on, on your life's goal. Don't let distractions get in the way of your goal. Like if you have a goal, don't let anybody, number one, tell you you can't make it. And number two, don't be, don't be part of the problem yourself. You know, be your best, your biggest cheerleader and put the effort into it. If you work hard enough, the beauty of America is that you can come from nowhere. I came from very, very humble beginnings and I worked hard enough to make it. And, you know, I worked, I worked harder than most anybody you can imagine. I, I did a lot of extra things that took me away from the, I never partied, I never drank. I never did anything that would compromise my goals. You know, I, I didn't do anything in college or high school that would interfere with my ability to become a doctor. So when I was there, it was my job. My job was to be the ultimate student. My job was to be the ultimate resident. My job was to be the ultimate fellow. And my goal now is to be the ultimate spine surgeon. So you should have goals like that in your life. And education is the key to anything you want to do. It opens doors and you have complete control over that. So really dive into your education and get the best grades you can so you're not limiting your opportunities. If you have great grades and you have the motivation and the work ethic, then you can really attain anything you want. And I think that's the key no matter what your goal in life is, no matter what job you seek. Thank you so much for coming in today. Holy smokes. Uh, before we head out, do you have a, a Netflix, a podcast, a resource that yeah. you really enjoy that you feel like would give someone value? Well, you can look at ours. I mean, I, you know, I mean, obviously I think Tori's, Tori's podcast, obviously she's a wealth of knowledge oh, thank you. because she is a medical professional. She's been in the trenches. She, she takes care of the most precious of us, which is the babies, you nice. know, but I think in addition to that, you know, looking at, um, looking at our, if you look at our, our surgical associates in spine, it's SA spine. If you look at our Facebook and our Instagram page, you can find me on uh, serious C Y R I O U S dot surgical. You can also find us on surgical dot associates dot in dot spine. There's a lot of dots in there, but surgical it. associates in spine on Instagram. We're also on YouTube. You can look up my name, Steven Sear on YouTube. I have, I have some videos that we're going to continue to produce those, but there's educational and informa informational videos that I put about put out about what to do after spine surgery, how to find a surgeon, what therapy you should do. Oh, and, that's and awesome. Those kinds of videos, informational videos that I've recorded are on YouTube. You can find those. Things. I will link those in the show notes for everybody too. So and we'll then of course our website is, is uh, saspine.com. So you can always find us there as well. Wow. Thank you so much for coming in today. And welcome. yeah, holy So, smokes. you know, coming around the corner, and just so you know, we have MD nutrition and that's that's Ooh, also what's also, that going to be yeah so that's coming probably i've seen the, you do some workouts on there like yeah, it's going to be the end of the month we're going to have our nutritional products it's going to be a pretty full complement of nutritional supplements and protein shakes 
uh, that we're going to put out. It should be either the end of this month or the beginning of October. They should be available. Okay. And so those will be, look for CYRMD. It's C-Y-R with an X like prescription, C-Y-R-M-D nutrition. And that we're also on Instagram and then CRMD skincare as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming in today. You're very welcome. It's my pleasure. Can't wait to try these new products, by the way. Awesome. Hey, 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 Selfie Squad. This episode was loaded up with information. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did recording it. If you want to head over to follow Dr. Sear and his skincare line on Insta, that's at cyrmd.skincare. And if you want to check out their products, head over to their website, www.cyrmdskincare.com. Not to mention the fact that he has an amazing YouTube account, Surgical Associates in Spine, that's on YouTube. I have linked all of these amazing things in the show notes. So if you swipe up, all the show notes are included with all these amazing links for you guys. And as many of you know, I have looped husband, Jacob, into the skincare regimen. And I wanted to speak to the the products that we are using specifically. So the number one product that we have been using is the injection-free serum. We use about three drops on each cheek and then forehead. And then I use probably honestly about four to five drops on my neck and decollete because you guys, we forget about that area, right? Like you need to bring all the product down, down, like let's get it in there. So I've been using that nightly. Jacob has been using on his forehead and cheeks. And honestly, the plumpy glowiness of it, it just looks so good. Not to mention the fact that I have been using these pads. They have acne pads that I've been using. And what I'll do is I will do my morning skincare routine as normal. I'll put on my moisturizer, maybe throw on my eyelashes, do a little mascara, very minimal at this point. You guys know this, Rona. Yes, here we go. And I pack the acne pads in my work bag and I'll do it like halfway through the shift. I'll just do a little wipe down on my chin. The other thing that I'm doing for the mask knee, and many of you know this who are following me on Instagram, is I pack a little travel sized version of Listerine and I wash my mouth out every, I would say three to four hours and essentially with care times. Okay. If you're a NICU nurse, you know what I'm talking about? Care times. Okay. So we do it on the off hours of care times and I'll walk rinse my mouth out with Listerine every couple hours just to kind of decrease that amount of bacteria in my mouth. So those are two things I've been doing to really battle the mask knee because honestly, it's very real. And for me, you guys know, I've been trying to be very transparent about this. I struggle with skincare. Skincare is something that I'm very passionate about and I do feel like it's something that I I really love and something I want to bring here to you all of my tips and tricks. And it's people like Dr. Sear, who I want to bring here to you, right? The people who are making waves, entrepreneurs, innovators, providers, and I'm so thankful to be able to bring them here to you. So thank you so much, Selfie Squad, for being here with me today. You guys, if you loved this episode or learned something or took something away from it, let me hear it in your rates and reviews. Head over to rate and review us on iTunes. If you guys do, leave your Insta handle in the review. I will be sending over some small selfie swag. So I'm talking super cute stickers and a selfie badge reel featuring Selena, our selfie icon. I'll be sending those to you 
personally because that's how much I love you guys. And make sure you are following us over on Insta. That's C-E-L-L-F-I-E underscore podcast. You can find all of our episodes on www.tipsfromtori.com. And I cannot wait to bring you guys more selfie shows. Thank you so much for being here with me today, you guys. And catch you next time.